0: Well, today we conclude our series on the will of God, and uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, We're going to read from verse 9 to 14. We're going to talk about making sense of God's will. So Paul, in the uh, book of Colossians, in his letter to the church in Colossae, he says this, For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here ends the reading of God's word. So as we enter uh, December, this is often a season of celebration and joy as we look forward to Christmas, uh, but for some people, it is also a season of the memory of loss or, or pain and sorrow. As some of us have loved, lost friends or family members, loved ones um, during, dur- during uh, times like this. And during seasons like this, uh, when, when we use the phrase, the word of God, often I, I mean, I, the, the will of God, often I hear it used uh, so carelessly And flippantly, uh, that the consequence of such carelessness of using this word uh, has so much serious consequences to our peace of mind, and even as we use the, well, it it must be the will of God, uh, that has such potentially devastating consequences to even uh, other people as well. That I want to spend some time uh, really diving into this subject one last time so we could think more clearly about this whole idea of the will of God. Let me just illustrate the confusion, and, and this story usually illustrates what I see over and over again when uh, people use this word, the will of God, pretty carelessly. When I was a youth pastor uh, a number of years ago out in Philadelphia, I remember it was a, I received news on a bright, sunny Monday afternoon. It was around this time of year, and the news that I received was that one of the students uh, who was in the youth ministry. Uh, in the church, ha- had taken uh, her own life earlier that morning. Uh, she was a bright, beautiful young woman uh, with a loving family and good friends, both at church and at school. And it was it was just a terrible tragedy for us, and it shocked all of our family and friends. And we were just devastated. Uh, we we didn't know. I mean, we 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 went through the whole different stages of grief. Uh, of just denial, this this can't be right, right? You uh, you almost expect to see Diana come around the corner and say, "Oh yeah, it's not real," to to anger and to bargain and to ex- finally acceptance. And I remember at her funeral, uh, there was not like a dry eye in in the sanctuary because. Um, there are so many people who shared uh, and remembered her life and what she meant to each one of us. And not only that, we all experienced such a powerful service uh, as the message of Jesus was proclaimed at her funeral, uh, where there was hundreds of people, hundreds of her friends from school who did not know Jesus. Well, I remember a couple months after the funeral, I was talking to Deanna's mother, Um, who was still grieving and coming to terms with with the tragedy. And she thanked me for all the love and support that the youth group and the students expressed to her as well as the church. And uh, and she was still going through that stage of bargaining and trying to come to accept the terms of of this tragedy. And and the thing that she kept saying over and over again is only if I would have known I could have done something only if I saw the signs or, you know, I I wish I could have just done told her this before this happened. Well, as we were talking, we were in a small group of other people, uh, other church members. I remember another church member, uh, in the the only way I could describe it is is a vain attempt to further console and comfort Deanna's mom, carelessly said... Well, you know, there, there now, you know, it, it must have been the Lord's will to take her home. She's in heaven now, and besides, so many of her unbelieving friends got to hear the gospel at her funeral. While all that is factually true, I was just appalled at these words that came out of this person's mouth, and I thought, certainly, death and suicide is not God's will, and so how does this person even say it must have been the Lord's will? And that illustrates some of the confusion that we have when we use this term that is so nuanced and so multifaceted. And so before we go on, the one thing we need to do is we need to dissociate from this phrase, the will of God, all that is evil and unjust in this world. And so that's pain and suffering, natural disasters and random accidents and death and all those things, we, we, cannot, we do not associate with the will of God. Because again, what kind of God is this who out of his own divine intention pours out uh, misery and disappointment and frustration and calamity upon his creation that, uh, and then he almost, you know, this is not the picture of God that where that the Bible describes or that Jesus came to demonstrate where the, that kind of God would then compel his creation to look up through their tears and say, God, your will be done. Right? Rather The will of God, the intentional will of God is his desire or his intent to pour goodness and kindness and love to like a good father or parent would to his or her child, right? And so first we must just simply break with this idea that everything that happens is the will of God in the sense that it was God's intention all along. That said, what I want to do is there was one book that was particularly helpful to think really with clear theological distinctions about this whole idea of the will of God. And I want to spend like 10, 10, 15 minutes just kind of going through that, and then we'll kind of come back to kind of, so what does that mean for our own lives? Well, this author uh, describes uh, and and makes distinctions between three different uh, nuanced views of God's will. And so the first one he talks about is what he calls the intentional will of God, which is God's ideal plan for humanity. This was his divine design uh, from the beginning. That's the intentional will of God. Next, he talks about and differentiates that from what he calls the circumstantial will of God, which is God's plan and his laws uh, that govern life's circumstances. And finally, he talks about God's ultimate will, which is God's final realization of all his plans and purposes and his will in this world. And so when we use the phrase the will of God to cover all three of these without any kind of distinction between them, it creates a lot of unnecessary confusion and grief and troubles for us. And so let's start with the whole idea of God's intentional will. And let me ask this, and as a show of hands, let me, let me see what you think of this question as it relates to God. Was, was it God's intentional will from the beginning that Jesus should go to the cross and die. Okay, how many of you would say, yes, that was God's intentional will? Okay, how many of you would say, no, that was not God's intentional will? How many of you would say, I don't know, some just tell us the answer? Okay. <laughs> right? Uh, and, and, and again, this is a very nuanced answer, and there's so many discussions we could have, but I think the, when we think about God's intentional will, this again, the answer I, I think to this question must be no, because it was God's intention that human beings would live in perfect communion with him and with one another and their environment. And so it was God's intention that the Adam and Eve and human beings would live in perfect communion with him, That was his ideal plan. But as we see, uh, this means, as we understand the intentional will of God, that we have to come to terms with this idea that the intentional will of God can be defeated by the will of human beings. And this is an important phrase, for the time being. Temporarily. Temporarily. And if this were not true, human beings would have no real freedom at all. Therefore, all pain and evil and suffering that happens does temporarily defeat God's intent. So to go back to our earlier, earlier illustration, what I would have said to Deanna's mom in response would have been like, no. Deanna's death was not the will of God at all in the sense of was it God's intention? No. What happened was the fruit of human misery, sin, and brokenness that is both within all of us and all around us in this world. So it is really important for us to think rightly about the will of God because what we can do is we can unintentionally thrust into people's minds an incredible amount of torment by saying, well, this tragedy must be God's will when the very opposite of God's will is actually being done. Now, so in the same way that we talk about the the intentional will of God, um, because there is human freedom, will, uh, human free will and the natural laws of the universe, which are actually expressions of God's intentional law. He designed and created it that way, right? We, we exist, there, there exists in our world conditions and circumstances that make room for all kinds of evil, disasters, and tragedy, and suffering. And all of those things cut against God's intentional will. That is not what God intended. Rather, uh, this this is what, again, the author calls the circumstantial will of God. That is, uh, these are what God allows or permits within the circumstances of life, including bad choices, ignorant mistakes, and even evil deeds, whether done by us or done to us. God doesn't devise these plans. He doesn't cause them to happen. And even though these these things are not God's first and best intentional will, what God does is He can still use these unintended events to accomplish His ultimate will, which we'll talk about soon enough. Um, and so he, here's an example of, of a of uh, what it looks like to. Uh, uh, um, what God's circumstantial will looks like within the circumstances of life. How many of you here have ever broken a bone in your body? Anybody? A lot of you. Okay. I have, and it's not very fun, right? I, I, if you haven't, I would advise against it. Um, well, so this also happened um, a, a long time ago, but I, I, I was walking and it was icy, uh, again, around this time of year. I, I hate December, right? Okay. Um, I, I, I was walking, and my shoes got caught on some ice in, in, some, in a parking lot. Well, and this part might be a little graphic, but um, but uh, my foot got stuck, and I slipped on the ice, and I, uh, I incurred a spiral fracture in my tibia and fibula. Both bones in my left leg, right, Uh, twisted, and and a spiral fracture, right? In both bones, it just went up like a spiral staircase. So there I am, like, agonizing in pain. The ambulance comes. They they, they take me to the hospital, and I'm laying there. And and as I look down, I just see my legs just limp because my bones can't even hold it up, right? And and a nurse coming and trying to, like, slide it uh, all into place. and, And I'm, like, screaming my head off, like, ah! And all she could say is like, I know, I know. I under, And I'm like, no, you don't, right? <laughs> you don't, right? And here I'm like in such excruciating pain. Now, we could look at that one example, and you can multiply that and amplify that in so many areas of tragedy and accidents in this world. And we could ask, well, did God cause that accident to happen? Or did my body simply obey the laws of the universe, of anatomy, of gravity, and all that? And so when we ask, was it God's will that I break my leg? Uh, Well, it depends on how you ask it. Was God's intentional will that I break my leg? The answer is no. That is not God's intention for my life. Well, Okay, well, was it God's will that um, uh, as my foot got caught and I fell uh, for me to feel all that pain that falls within the circumstantial will of God? Well, and this is, again, a very nuanced answer, and I think it's, well, well, yes and no. No, in as far as God does not delight in watching us suffer pain, But yes, in, in as far as God designed our bodies to function in a certain way in response to pain to protect us. And simply put, God does not somehow suspend the laws of the universe or set them aside just because something is inconvenient or seems unfair to us in that moment. And so again, we could look at the example of a cross given the conditions and circumstances uh, of the evil forces that that, uh, created the conditions for Jesus to be uh, betrayed, to be tortured, and finally crucified, the natural laws of the universe were not all of a sudden suspended or set aside for even the Son of God. On that day, the natural laws that govern the hammering in of nails... Uh, remained unchanged on the day of Jesus' crucifixion in just the same way as they would if I were to take a hammer and drive a nail into a wood plank. Those laws did not change. And so on that day, the nails that pierced the flesh of the Son of God, he experienced excruciating pain and it wasn't deflected, even though that was perpetrated by evil forces and evil men. And so the laws of God in regards to pain operated just as when you and I uh, get hurt. And yet within this circumstantial will of God, right, God could still take this unintended event and accomplish his ultimate will. Uh, so we take the circumstantial will of Jesus uh, being crucified and tortured. God, did God still accomplish his ultimate will? Yes, which was what? The redemption of all humanity, reconciling us to God himself. And so finally, let's go on to the ultimate will of God. Um, This is the final realization of God's purposes in, in in, in this life. And he accomplishes that not only in spite of all the evil things in this world, but he accomplishes his ultimate purpose by using and redeeming even some of our sins and mistakes and even the evil that people commit in this world. Somehow in God's sovereignty, he uses all of that to accomplish his ultimate will, which is just mind blowing. And, and the best picture that, that uh, we could describe, and again, in the, uh, this, the one book, uh, um, he did a great job of describing this and I'm just gonna share that, that same illustration here. Uh, he, he imagines a picture of children playing beside a small stream that runs down the mountainside into and joins into a great river down in the valley. So now imagine these little children, right, playing along the mountainside, this little stream, and just like little children do, they, they start getting big rocks and stones, and they, they try to divert or hinder this little stream from coming down the mountain. They try to build a dam, right? And so let's say they even succeed in doing that. Well, here's the thing, Uh, and we can only push this analogy so far, because some of you who are like uh, structural engineers are like, well, you know, we could technically, well, okay, let's not push the illustration too far here, but uh, not one of these children could ever succeed in preventing the water from reaching the river down below. Likewise, we are like children, uh, uh, good and bad people who at times consciously or unconsciously try to divert or hinder God's purposes, but we can never finally defeat God's ultimate will. In fact, that illustration of the children along the mountainside, that illustration doesn't go far enough because you know what God does is even if evil men try to divert his purposes to hinder the, the, the stream of God's will to come down and eventually be accomplished, you know what God does is he even uses evil circumstances and evil things. And, and if you will, he almost creates and makes another channel to carry the water of God's plan to the river of his purposes down below. And that is kind of the picture of the ultimate will of God. And so when we talk about the ultimate will of God, we often think, oh, well, God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. He's all powerful. We need to understand that God's sovereignty does not mean that nothing can happen outside of God's will. Because we've seen a lot of things happen. We are able to defeat God's intentional will for the time being. Rather, God's sovereignty means that nothing can happen which will finally defeat his purpose. God will accomplish at last all that he wants to accomplish and nothing of eternal value will be lost in the process. However much we may try to divert or hinder his will to be done, we cannot hinder the stream of his purpose. Now, at this point, uh, some, uh, well, um, before I go there, an illustration will help here. And then let me, I'll answer one objection, an illustration to help kind of understand the ultimate will of God. Many, many years ago, there was no such thing as blotting paper. Um, Ink was dried by uh, dusting the page with a light powder back then. And one day in a paper mill, uh, one of the workers made a mistake. And let's say for the sake of argument that that worker committed a sin. A grave mistake. Now, through his gross uh, negligence and carelessness, he omitted, what happened is he omitted a certain chemical in the paper, and the result was that the paper was entirely unfit for its intended purpose. Now, the owner of the paper mill was uh, very angry, obviously, because this meant the loss of an entire line of paper. Profits and, and margins all went down the drain. But when the paper was finally brought to him he, and he tried to write on it, he noticed that it, the ink immediately absorbed into the paper and the whole idea of blotting paper came to, uh, occurred to him and came about. Now, let's say, uh, for the sake of illustration, that the mill owner, his goal is to make money. And so we can see how even when an apparent loss actually was redeemed for a uh, much greater gain, Um, And so let's say his ultimate, uh, the paper mill owner's intentional uh, will was to make money from paper. However, because of, but his intentional will is diverted and, and even defeated because of the carelessness of this one worker. And yet we see the redemptive response ultimately leads to the realization of his ultimate will, which is. To make money, uh, which accomplished it, um, if, th- if that makes sense. Now, of course, this illustration doesn't cover all the bases and doesn't do justice to what we call the mystery of God. Um, and now, from this whole idea of God's ultimate will, some people may argue well, then fine, if God is sovereign and no, no, nobody can defeat his will, then why even bother? to try to accomplish his will. Let's just be careless and irresponsible. What does it matter if we sin, if God can use that sin and turn it for good? I mean, let him get on with it. Nothing we do actually matters. And oftentimes I hear that argument. Well, uh, Paul actually also addresses this in his letter to the church in Rome when he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer, right? So Paul is basically kind of saying, look, it's one thing to say, well, evil has been done. Let's see how God is gonna redeem it and use it. And let's see how I uh, am called to cooperate in accomplishing God's will. That's very different from saying, I will deliberately do evil in order to redeem good from it. So no, it it does matter uh, how we respond to him. Uh, and God will accomplish his purpose whether he decides to use us as his agents or he uses something else. So that, that's kind of a, a, a short, um, hopefully helpful and simple to understand summary of kind of this theological understanding of God's will. Um, and, and again, let me just make this one caveat. Understanding this at an intellectual or theological level does not mean and does not always equate to uh, a peace and a spiritual balm at the emotional level, right? You can have all this clear in your head, but that doesn't always mean, right, that, that doesn't provide comfort necessarily when you're in, in the emotional midst of suffering and pain. And so this message, what I really want to hit home is, is not so much the intellectual and theological part, which is important, for this to really make its way home into our hearts, especially for some of you who are going through some immense uh, periods of maybe loss, confusion, suffering, or sorrow, right to go back to the blotting illustration right and I think in some ways, that is all of us, because going back to the blotting illustration right. Uh, Here is the work of. uh, uh, Here is carelessness, not just done by one person, one worker, but we live in a world where sin abounds because the carelessness of literally billions of people in this world, and so we become victims of systems of injustice. We we become we we have sins committed against us. We have sins in us, and so now the result of all that carelessness in this world is not just wasted paper. What you and I experience is wasted lives, wasted homes, wasted cities, wasted money, wasted time, all this waste. But in God's providence and sovereignty, is that all waste? The answer is no. For the simple reason that we trust the owner of this great mill, paper mill, that is the world, and knowing that he is accomplishing his purposes. And unlike the story of the paper mill owner, he does not lose his temper, but rather he, he redeems our mistakes. He uses even evil circumstances and he redeems it for his ultimate purpose. And so what I want to do is close with uh, one story that every time I'm reminded of the story uh, always inspires me and, and gives me, calls me to greater faith and trust in our Lord. I'm going to call up the worship team. Um, we're actually going to serve communion afterwards, so I'm going to call the communion servers and, and the prayer leaders. Um, and as we, as we prepare, let me just share this story of, uh, of a man named Horatio Spafford. Uh, the song that we're going to close with was written and based on events from his life. Um, Horatio Spafford was a prominent lawyer and a businessman from Chicago and he invested really heavily in, uh, in real estate back then. More importantly, Horatio was a devoted Christian and a loving family man. In 1870, uh, Horatio and his wife Anna lost their only son to scarlet fever. He was only four years old. A year later, the great fire of Chicago broke out and Horatio lost nearly everything as the fire reduced the great city to ashes. Well, after all the string of tragedies, he desired rest for him and his family. And so he planned a trip to Europe, but at the last moment he was detained because of some unexpected business that came up and that he had to take care of and and held him back in Chicago And so Anna, his wife, and their four daughters went on ahead with Horatio expecting to follow in the days to come. Well, halfway through uh, their trip across the Atlantic Ocean, their ship was uh, struck by a British vessel, and their ship sank to the bottom of the ocean in 12 minutes. Many people died after hours of floating in rough seas. Anna was rescued. And, and she finally arrived in Wales where she could telegraph her husband. And she telegraphed this message with only two words to Horatio. And it was simply this saved alone. 226 lives were lost, including Spafford's four daughters Annie, age 11. Maggie, age 9, Bessie, age 7, and Tanetta, age 2. So after receiving this devastating news, Horatio immediately boards the next ship, crossing the ocean to join his grieving wife over in Wales. And as he's crossing the uh, the ocean, he spends hours on the bow of the ship, overlooking the waters that took the lives of his precious daughters. And as the ship came near to the exact spot where his four daughters lost his life, he penned the words to this famous hymn that we sing. He wrote, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. In the midst of loss and suffering and pain, even when circum- the circumstantial will of God brought so much storm and, and, and so much troubles, He places faith in the God who would accomplish His ultimate will. Well by God's grace, Horatio and Anna picked up their broken lives. They had other kids, and one of their daughters. Actually, started the, uh, the Spafford Children's Center in Jerusalem, which is still around today, which cares for more than 30,000 children every year. Such an inspiring story of faith in our Creator, in our Sustainer, and Redeemer. As we close and before we prepare to sing and to take the Lord's Supper, I want to leave us with this verse The Lord is close. To the brokenhearted, He rescues those who are crushed in spirit. And so today, no matter what you're going through, we are reminded as we come to the table of the pain and suffering that Jesus, our Lord, suffered as His body was broken for us, as His blood was shed on our behalf for our sins. We come and we do this in remembrance of Him.